but in general, feed quality is pretty bad in the industry, right? Um, that's, you know, you, you lease cost formulation and then, you, you know, try to get the throughput in the feed mill. And oh, so there's a variety of factors that are playing against having really high feed quality. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. JBI helps poultry producers fight against harmful pathogens with the foaming power of D7 disinfectant. JBI prevents costly outbreaks and assures eco-friendly biosecurity on-farm and in transport. Safe and effective against AI, E. coli, salmonella, cocci, dermatitis, and other illness-causing pathogens, D7 is non-toxic, providing a safer environment for you and your employees. Low corrosive to equipment and breaks down biofilms. Learn more at jbidistributors.com. Hi and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for this episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is our guest, Dr. Kelly Wamsley. Dr. Wamsley is an associate professor in the Department of Poultry Science at Mississippi State University. She completed her undergraduate studies as well as her master's and doctorate at West Virginia University. Her research program focuses on poultry nutrition with an emphasis on exploring the nutritional implications of feed manufacturing. In addition to her research, Dr. Wamsley also teaches undergraduate and graduate level courses in feed manufacturing, broiler production, and poultry judging. Welcome, Dr. Wamsley. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And we're really glad to have you. Before we get started talking about, you know, your research program and, and everything that you've got going on, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a professor at Mississippi State? Sure. Um, so I don't think that my story is very unique um, to many, uh, you know, compared to many other people in our field. Um, growing up, I loved animals. And so I think the obvious thing that you think when you love animals you're going to be a veterinarian. And so I'm from West Virginia. Um, while poultry is the number one ag commodity in West Virginia, um, I didn't really know that much about it. I just knew I liked to eat chicken, right? <laughs> and um, actually, if you look at the county that I'm from, which my students will always make fun of me about, then I relate back to this. I, it's kind of shaped like a chicken. So if you're <laughs> curious, Raleigh County, look it up. Um but so it's kind of ironic that I'm from that county and that I started working with um, poultry. But I went to West Virginia University um, to pursue, uh, you know, animal science degree and um, had done the typical thing of volunteering in a vet clinic to try to get experience. 
And my undergraduate advisor um, was Dr. Jim Wirtz, and um, he's still at West Virginia University. And we were talking um, about, you know, how I could set myself apart in a vet school interview. So he's like, well, I mean, your grade's pretty good. Um, you know, you think you can work pretty hard, then, you know, you can try out for this, um, apply for this summer undergraduate research experience. And so that summer, we did a lot of work at organic farm um, with pasture poultry. Um, and, you know, you let the birds out every morning at 7 a.m., put them up at 7 p.m. And then also really dove into his feed manufacturer research and very manual labor, as you know. And so um, I finished that summer and I thought, oh, my goodness, I've never, you know, I'm not applying to vet school. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> so kind of didn't turn, you know, didn't look back, um, went through that trajectory. And um, he gave me a great opportunity to participate in research as an undergraduate, present, go to meetings, stay for my master's and then my Ph.D. And so then when graduating, you know, I was looking at the different options that were available and I really did want to go into academia, um, but wasn't sure if, you know, should I start out right away? Um, should I go into industry, get some experience, and then come back? Um, but I was really interested in making sure that wherever I went, it was a really good fit. Um, so this worked out at Mississippi State. I work with a great group of people, and um, I've been here uh, ten and a half years now. It's crazy. Time flies. <laughs> wow, that went by really fast. Your story is very similar to to a lot of stories we hear about uh, folks who end up in the poultry industry. That a lot of us loved animals to begin with. Thought, of course, the only career I can do with animals is be a vet, and came to discover that there's a whole host of other careers that are uh, actually, I, I think, even more fulfilling than than veterinary science would have been. <laughs> so that's that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. In in your time uh, through your academic progress, was there any moment where you felt like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And if so, why did you keep going? Absolutely. I think that everybody, if you're doing your your um, graduate career right, <laughs> you've probably questioned your path a couple times. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I think for me, it's um, probably similar to others. It's just whenever, you know, things get overwhelming. So many different things going on, pressure, um, of just putting things together, especially whenever you're finishing up and getting, you know, all the writing finished. Um, you know, I, I was like many, I mean, writing is not my favorite, um, but I love getting the information out there and it's needed and especially in an academic job. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's a little bit hard to get started. Um, and so especially during some of those stages and just trying to do that last push um, or when you've got a lot of projects going on and, um, you know, then you've got schoolwork to do. Um, then, you know, those are the times that never you're just, you know, you're tested and you have to really, um, you know, put things into perspective and think, okay, this is now in the moment, right? And think about where you've come from and what you've been able to go through that you think was really challenging before, but, you were able to go through it <laughs> and um, and then you were happy on the other side of it. So 
um, you know, I reached that point in a lot of, in uh, at several points um, in my graduate career and then in academia too. But I think we all do. Oh, yeah. I think we've all been there. I am certain, given the number of students I know listen to this podcast, someone is listening to this while having a mental breakdown in their lab right now. So to that person or people, hang in there. This is temporary. You can do it. It is. And (laughs) yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, not to make light of it, but I mean, it, it, it gets tough sometimes. And just, you know, just kind of being able to get yourself in your happy place and maybe... Maybe what you need to do is really just disconnect um, and, you know, do something for yourself for a little while or a day or weekend or whatever, you know, a week maybe, and then just kind of recalibrate things. But I think, um, you know, what I always tell my students and what I do for myself, too, if it's something that's a really challenging, um, you know, testing you, then I just, you know, I like to write things down. Um, you know, making notes to be able to say okay, specific things where you overcame, you know, a challenge. Um, because then, you know, you can think about it, right? But when you can actually physically see it, um, it puts it a little more into perspective. It's really good advice. So you mentioned that you've been at Mississippi State for 10 years now, which I also can't believe (laughs) 10 years have flown by for me as well. Um, It's okay. We won't talk about that. As soon as you get out of school, you blink and it's gone, man. Um, So in in your last 10 years, looking back, if there was something that you know now that you could take back 10 years in the past for your past self, does anything come to mind? Um, You know, that's that's challenging. I mean, I think that the biggest thing is just um, it's okay if you don't know um, and you have the tools and not everyone knows everything. Right. And so um, the smartest person in the room is the person that knows what they, you know, what they don't know. <laughs> um, I love that. And so um, I think it, it's okay not to know something and, um, and you can, you can always find the answer. You have the skills to be able to do that. So didn't, <laughs> That's great advice. Sometimes the best thing you can do is ask for help. But I think a lot of us struggle with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's hard. I mean, I, you know, I think about, I know students, sometimes they, you know, struggle with coming, you know, coming to, you know, their their professor and asking them for advice. Um, and they think maybe they, you know, won't understand or, you know, you know, me personally, even just thinking about, you know, I'm talking, calling to people in the industry. People are really busy. Everyone's really busy. And so sometimes I feel really guilty to call somebody up and everyone's always so welcome, you know, and everybody wants to help everybody. Um, You hear it so many times uh, that, you know, people say, you know, chicken business isn't just about chickens. It's about people. And um, I mean, that's that's really, really true. And everyone that I've ever interacted with are um, the most genuine people. So um, I think that's what also helps to make our jobs so awesome um, and really enjoyable. I agree. That ability to collaborate across different sectors of the poultry industry and academia is wonderful. And honestly, it kind of makes your day to, if we call each other and sometimes it spurs you to think about the issues going on in your work a little bit differently to talk with someone from outside of your, you know, workplace. For Absolutely. Once. So I agree. Reaching out is always a good thing. So uh, in your in your teaching career, how would you describe your teaching philosophy? And if you could tell us a little bit about 
does it apply differently to undergraduate students versus graduate students? Or are there some general themes that you bring to all of your student interactions? Um, so when I was in um, school, I took some extra courses to get a certificate in um, university teaching um, just because it was a new program that was offered and it wouldn't, it wasn't, you know, didn't add too much to my schedule. And um, in that course or in that, that um, program through a series of courses, um, you know, we kind of covered a, a, the scientific background about how you learn and, um, you know, trying to put presentations together in the best way where you're always, you know, you're making class interactive. It's not just lecture because the majority of lecture is forgotten within the first 60 minutes. <laughs> so, um, you know, trying to, I use clickers in the classroom and things like that, but always just thinking about the big picture too. And so I'll try to preface, you know, lectures and saying, okay, there's going to be certain terms that you're going to have to 100% memorize, right? Um, but it's making, you're going to need that foundation to then be able to make connections um, with, you know, other material. Um, and then also being able to, you know, there are going to be new things that pop up once you graduate and that you didn't learn at school, right? But if you're taught, you know, some problem solving, critical thinking skills um, while you're in school, those skills could be used, you know, in your job because you can solve any problem then um, if you're if you're th learning to think critically. Um, so I don't think just I don't really just think about, you know, teaching for the test, um, but trying to give students, you know, other activities, written responses. Uh, we get popular press articles in the classroom. I have a lot of guest lectures that come in um, and then, you know, to wake people up for a second, you know, we go through and kind of do a little bit of a review with clicker questions and make sure that that key concepts weren't missed um, before we move on too far. So I think really I try to push all my students um, as far as, you know, I feel like I could push them. It's really important for me to know the students. And so um, more than just pushing on a graduate and undergraduate level um, or a difference in teaching between those uh, groups of students, it's really the individual that I try to kind of have a range of um, of trying to meet where they are at. So we've seen kind of a nationwide trend towards fewer and fewer students enrolling in poultry science programs, specifically in agriculture in general. And some of this is just a cultural shift where fewer and fewer people are growing up on farms and have an interest in those sort of things. What kind of tactics do you think we can use to, you know, reach out to that pre-vet student and inform them that there are other options in life um, or, you know, even more challenging to reach out to people growing up in the city because we're going to need to start recruiting from a larger base to fill the needs that the industry has. Sure. That's a great point. I mean, yeah, we've got to feed the, the world's growing population. And I mean, chicken, why not be chicken? I mean, it's we're poised, um, very efficient, and um, we're poised to be there to be able to feed the world. So, um we, you know, COVID, I think, was really hard for every, I mean, the industry, right, personnel, I mean, across, you know, all sectors um, that everyone's involved with. 
But it, so poultry, we weren't immune to that in poultry science departments um, and kind of these kind of uh, degree programs where it's really hard sometimes to sell chickens to people who don't know that much about chickens. And um, for us, you know, we really like to try to show, you know, for our department at Mississippi State, we like to show that we're, you know, family atmosphere, open door kind of policy with faculty. And so um, you really need somebody here on campus to fully appreciate what we have going on. And I know other poultry science departments are, you know, they're they're kind of facing the same challenges. Um, if you can get somebody in our door, I feel like, you know, we have a, at least a better chance of getting them than not, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, different universities are going to streamlining um, processes, processes, I guess, and recruitment and, um, and um, sorry, recruitment and with advising um so kind of restart but um so different universities are going into these procedures to kind of streamline different processes like uh recruitment and advising and you know while it looks great on paper right because you have less people involved and maybe some more continuity um it also takes it out of you know that connection that we get with the students and um, so that I think that's really important. And that's something that we're going to have to kind of relook at. Um, and also, I think that, you know, if some of many of us that are in the field and I know that I talked to are in the industry now or in academia, we weren't all just the absolute best students. I wasn't. Um, <laughs> I mean, I did. I did great in high school. Um, I did pretty good in you know, college. But I got so involved and loved, you know, the research aspect that I was just like, well, I'm not, you know, I want to devote my time to this. Um, And if I was only judged on my ACT score or SAT score or, you know, GPA, then, you know, it might be a little more challenging for me to be to get where I am today. Um, And so I think that's something that's really important because you have universities that are also capping enrollment and you know, have some pretty high requirements to get in. And you could be, you know, really excluding, you know, some really fantastic talent. Um, Luckily, here at Mississippi State, we're not um, faced with as many challenges like that at this time. I hope that it continues to to be that way um, because it gives more people an opportunity, right? And, um, I think everybody deserves an opportunity and not just being judged on, you know, a couple numbers. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, really, the best researchers are the ones who are hardworking and passionate, and GPA doesn't have a whole lot to do with that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, they're, they're, we need to learn statistics in school, right? But applying mm-hmm. it in a research setting and using a poultry model for what we want to do for the rest of our life versus something in engineering and a statistical, you know, model, um, learning how to, you know, to analyze data from an engineering, chemical engineering um, department or something like that. You know, it's it. my kind of mindset is I get, which can be kind of closed minded, I guess. But if um, it's one thing that I have to work on, but if I don't see that there's a huge amount of value in something like that, 
it makes it a little more difficult to do it, right? <laughs> well, I think a lot of us feel that way. I don't know that that's close-minded so much <laughs> as it is practical. Yeah, um, well, I definitely I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> It seems like we would benefit from having, and especially statistics is a great example, more targeted and tailored coursework, especially on the graduate level with statistics, where I don't necessarily need the graduate level stats courses from the statistics department, but I do need a really solid like bioinformatics and biostatistics foundation to be able to do research correctly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I was fortunate now picking on statistics, I guess, but I did have a a really good professor in grad school um, in statistics. His name was Dr. Turk, and he um, came from our college, too, so on the agriculture side, and to try to make sure that um, he was kind of, you know, we it was taught, you know, not in the ag side of campus. It was taught downtown and at uh, on West Virginia University campus, and so, you know, we're coming from working at the farm. You got feathers and, you know, a little dirty, maybe a little smelly. And you can usually see a buffer zone around you of people. <laughs> they can relate. All, I think a lot of people can relate. But, you know, even he knew where we were coming from and he wanted to teach to us. And so he got data from us and used examples in class for others. So he wasn't just doing, you know, engineering type studies or, you know, things that we couldn't connect with at all. And so, I mean, that's, you know, an example of a good teacher, I think, too, just being able to try to make what you're teaching as relatable as possible so that people can see the real world application in class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those professors are a godsend. I know I would not have made it through all the statistics courses if my professor didn't understand that I had a completely different background than the math majors in that class you know absolutely yeah that's uh we need more of those for sure yes yep i agree well switching gears from teaching over to research could you tell us a little bit about your core mission for your research program sure um so i just think that for me um so I, in uh there are others out there doing a great job but we have a pretty applied research focus and so, you know, trying to work with the integrators, um, ally companies out there and whatever kind of issues that they're facing or um, that are, you know, the next questions that are coming up, um, just trying to be able to work with them to be able to solve those problems. And so the reason why I love my job is, um, you know, one, interacting with the students but also being on, you know, some cutting edge research that is also really applicable in the industry. And so you have that direct impact on, you know, the chicken that you're buying at the grocery store. Um, and so I've been involved in a lot of different things, um, but, you know, um, a lot of enzyme research, amino acid um, requirements and looking at, you know, nutrient density of diets and, you know, what's most economical depending on, you know, the grow out of the bird or the, the type of genetics. Um, and kind of my projects that I do on the side that are I'm more passionate about are some feed quality work. And that's something that's not necessarily going to be, you know, funded um, through some of the same kind of funding sources. Um, but it's, you know, if I've got some money together and I try to 
be able to apply for sometimes internal funds or whatever to be able to kind of keep that research going because it's something that's really important, um, often not thought about. Um, I know you guys have had Dr. Pacheco on this program, and he does a lot of great research in the area too, and Dr. Fahrenholtz, and um, there's Dr. Morris that does a lot of research in this area and others. But, um, you know, they're becoming more and more of us out there that are doing this type of work. Um, but connecting, so not just thinking about nutrition or how to formulate the diet, but thinking about what happens when you pellet it, because, you know, the majority of commercial birds are fed a pelleted diet, at least from broilers and turkey standpoints. And so feed's already expensive. You're adding this other cost on top of it to make it even more expensive. Um, and so, you know, genetics are changing. So it's a really important area. It is. It's an extremely important area. And like you mentioned, not one that we have, you know, a lot of extensive literature on. All of it's relatively recent and, and building on each other. I noticed your lab is really focused on investigating the effect of feed distribution systems on the segregation of the feed particles and therefore the nutrients. Um, that's really important work, but also a really complex problem to tackle. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your approach in uh, researching this in a in a university setting using commercial feed lines and uh, a little bit about what your research has shown so far. Sure. Um, yeah, that's something that we've done in the past couple of years. Uh, and it's it was really interesting. It's just kind of following up the work from um, some work that Sheila Shadler did. And it was just a very uh, small um, research or extension article, I think, that was published in nine, 1994 saying uh, research or pelleting is important, I think. And um, she just did some proximate analysis assays for feed sampled at different points along the, the uh, feed line and found that segregation occurred. And she, you know, measured pellets and fines separately and then found that segregation occurred. And so we wanted to follow up that work and see, okay, can we repeat that? And what does that look like um, on a commercial scale and much larger scale? Because she w- it was from one, you know, I think there were two different feeding uh, systems maybe that she looked at and then, um, I, but still it's an instant in time. So I collaborated um, with West Virginia University on that too. And so with Joe Moritz and he sampled around integrators kind of the northeast and then we sampled around integrators around in the southeast and just to try to have um, a really comprehensive snapshot at looking at different operations um, to see what feed quality or you know looking at, at beginning feed quality and then look sampling throughout the house in a couple of locations and so you know I mean that get that requires you to get on farm right and then you kind of have to time it to see if you can You've got to empty feed pans and then get the feed system to call for feed and then, you know, make sure the birds don't go over and eat it <laughs> and run in there and take samples. And then um, and then we save the feed, separated pellets and fines, and then sent them out for analysis. And um, we were looking at amino acids and, you know, approximate analysis um, just to see what we could find. And so we found some differences. And so we wanted to really kind of follow that work up and then see, okay, but what does that mean bird performance-wise? And with varying pellet qualities, can you, you know, overcome it from a standpoint that would be practical um, in the real world? 
You know, it's one thing to say, okay, we changed, um, we found, you know, X percentage of difference in lysine at the beginning of the of the feed line versus the end of the feed line. But does it matter to impact, you know, feed conversion ratio or the bird weight and processing, breast muscle, you know, accretion, so on and so forth. And so what we did, we're fortunate. We have two commercial houses um, that are adjacent, that is, are located adjacent to our research farm. Um, and so we're contract growers. And in between um, flocks, we were able to get uh, feed that was manufactured in a variety of ways, looking at liquid um, mixer added fat and a liquid phytase that was as added in the mixer. And then looking at post pellet application of the liquid phytase and of fat. Um, some fat was added at the mixer um, as well, but the rest of it was post pellet addition. And then we created different feed treatments, like a 55% pellets versus a 75% pellets. And then augured all that feed <laughs> um, into the feed bins. And then had we had to figure out, you know, how much feed was had charged the line to be able to get it to call for feed and fill the whole feed line. And so doing a lot of background work and timing it all um, to be able to set it up to know how much feed that we needed to put in the feed bin. Um, because, of course, you know that also feed of varying feed qualities, you know, um, uh, Winowinski's done some of that work. Um, and he's spoken about it and had some popular press articles on it, but feed segregates in the bin. Um, and so do pellets come out first or does mash come out first or, you know, what ratio, um, what does that look like? And so we started seeing that, um, and from sampling at different points and along the feed, um, feed line, we started seeing that pellets are coming out first and, um, then feed quality as, you know, it makes sense as feed goes along the line and is augured throughout. There's uh, mechanical forces, frictional forces that help break down that pellet. And um, mash, actually, you know, the fines fall out into the feed pans. And so you actually, so you see a big dip in feed quality towards the middle of the line. And then you see the kind of survival of the fittest, I guess, that pellets kind of make it towards the end. Um and so you see more of that when you have higher quality pellets too. Um, and so, whereas I think in some cases we had almost 90% pellets at the end of the feed line um, for that high feed quality diet. And so uh, we also found that, you know, segregation does occur, um, you know, regardless of the method, but it was a little more extreme with post pellet um, application, which makes sense, Right. I mean, you're applying it on the outside of the pellet. And so if the outside of the pellet is breaking down, then it's just going to start to fall out into the feeders. Um, we actually did see some differences in performance between birds that were fed at the beginning of that feed line versus the end of that feed line. Um, the reason why we know that is because we took, you know, um, so we raised the feed lines up in that commercial house. And then after the feed was augured throughout, we'd stop it. And then we'd go through and empty every single feed pan on that line and then collect the feed and kind of simulate like a half house brooding. So, you know, in the, in the one phase, you know, birds would be 
feeding out of this set of feeders. We also know birds don't move around a lot in a commercial house, right? So um, just trying to see, okay, what does uniformity look like? And does this amount of segregation that we're picking up from lab analyses, from wet chemistry, does it matter to the birds? And and we did see some differences. Did you see differences in the nutrient, just the nutrient profile, or were there differences in the ingredient composition? Like certain ingredients tended to go with the fines. I would imagine that post pellet applied enzyme probably ended up with the fines. Yeah, it, it was. Um, yeah, so for example, the post pellet um, enzyme, and then also the um, and the fat because that's what's added on the outside. So. Um, you know, crude fat was a little bit increased in the fines in those areas too. Interesting. So the birds that eat the fines, and we all know that birds don't really like to eat fines, but they're probably getting a higher energy diet if they are, they're getting that fat. That's interesting. Very interesting. Does particle size of ingredients play a role in this? So there's a lot of, um, there's some work that's been done recently in the particle size of ingredients. And we know and, and my lab hasn't been doing that, but Dr. Pacheco has been doing some of that work. And um, Dr. Abdullahi and, at Massey University um, also is doing some of that work. And so, you know, they've shown looking at not just the macrostructure of the pellet, but looking at the microstructure of the pellet, then that has bigger implications on digestibility. Um, and that once we pellet, once the feed goes through the pellet mill, that you're actually seeing a reduction in, you know, particle size, ingredient particle size. Uh, my lab, we've been kind of focusing on just feed quality in general um, and not looking at the ingredient particle size as much. Uh, we've been trying to look at the optimal feed particle size for um, starter birds. Um, so in from that kind of zero to 18 day range, um, we got into that kind of in a, a weird way, um, I guess, or an unexpected way, like a lot of research, right? Um, so we started out doing some of this late feed quality work in, in my graduate degrees. Um, that's in, in some of the undergraduate research that I was involved with with Joe Moritz at West Virginia. Um, we were looking at, you know, what does it mean to feed high quality pellets? And how, what are practical ways that you can manufacture high quality pellets, even in a commercial setting? Um, and to really try to, um, to find out the true impact, you know, we looked at a lot of those later stages, um, in growth. So after 28 days or so, um, because, you know, obviously birds are consuming a lot more feed. So some of those benefits of feeding pelleted feed, like, um, decreased prehension time and energy and so on and so forth, you, you'd be able to see, um, you know, really true performance differences at that time and um, just an e- extreme example. And so we focused in on those ranges and um, followed up looking at different commercial genetics even um, and found that, you know, we see improvements in performance even from just a 50% versus an 80% pellet um, and, and up to, I think eight points in feed conversion ratio and, um, and improvements in body weight. And so then we wanted to look at, okay, well, we know that it makes a difference. So how can we, you know, look at what is the optimal feed quality and, you know, 
then people can kind of, you know, decide, okay, I'll be able to make, um, you know, they'll, they know in an individual situation what kind of feed quality they can make at their mill. And so then be able to kind of look at the research and get some kind of, a, you know, more information on what to expect. Um, so not changing anything really in formulation. And we started out um, to do that. And when we did that, we found that it was just so complex because we started looking at it from a starter, grower, and finisher and carrying things on throughout all of the phases. And we found that starting feed quality and finisher feed quality interacts um, to give you differences in performance in the birds. And so that's not what we expected. <laughs> um, we, you know, I mean, we kind of expected that, you know, if you start around on a poor quality feed, you know, you might be able to recover things in the end um, if you give them a higher quality feed. Um, but it was, it, it was a little bit different from that. And so what that had us do was look at, really break down and look at the individual growth phases individually. So we then went through and started designing um, some starter feed studies. And so, you know, just thinking, okay, let's manufacture one common feed, right? High quality feed, and then um, make varying sizes of crumbles from it. So running all the feed through at the same time. So it's kind of, you know, the only heat treatment kind of difference would be whatever kind of frictional heat that's, um, you know, imparted in crumbling the feed. And so um, we fed that to birds and we looked at um, feed particle sizes, I think from 1200 to, um, let me kind of start over for a second. Yeah. Okay. So we looked um, at manufacturing these common diets and we looked at different feed particle sizes ranging from 1,200 to 2,200 microns. So um, we did kind of as a, uh, an informal survey, taking some feed, field samples and saw that the average crumble particle size um, in the field was about 12 to 1,700 microns. So we kind of want to cover that span, but then go bigger and um, see what, you know, was the optimal crumble particle size. Not kind of, you know, not worrying about anything with ingredient crumble or ingredient particle size. Um, and so what we found was that we thought, you know, at those bigger particle sizes, you might see uh, that performance is hurt on this day old chicks up to, you know, 18 days. But we didn't. We just found that, you know, performance improved. We, pa we had um, differences in body weight and um, differences of feed conversion ratio. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, maybe we just didn't go big enough. Because, you know, I mean, thinking about looking at requirement for amino acids, um, you, know, uh, you know, for instance, you want to look, you want to go way below the requirement, right? And you want to go above it and you want to see where that plateau is. And then your requirements, you know, around there or before it. And so we didn't get that plateau. We didn't see um, or, or any hurt, hurting of performance. Um, so we then went back to the drawing board and then did a wider range of particle sizes going from like 1200 to 3800 microns. 
for reference, um, 4,000 microns is what's typically qualified as um, anything bigger than 4,000 microns would be a pellet. Um, so we went almost all the way up to pellet. And again, we saw that performance um, kept, you know, uh, improving basically when you fed those larger particle sizes. We never saw that feeding that 3,200 um, or uh, sorry, I think it was 3,700 microns. We never saw at that high end um, that we hurt performance. So we're like, huh, okay. I mean, you know, we make terrible, uh, not, you know, not all feed mills, but in general, feed quality is pretty bad in the industry, right? Um, that's, you know, you, you least cost formulation and then, you, you know, try to get the throughput in the feed mill. And uh, so there's a variety of factors that are playing against having really high feed quality. Um, so I thought we, we started thinking and, okay, so what if birds can consume pellets in the starter phase or we have really poor quality pellets anyways, if we only need to grind them a little bit with a crumbler, you know, we can increase our starter throughput, which is a big, you know, bottleneck in a feed mill and then also save on electrical energy. Um, used by the crumbler. So, um, you know, maybe not just feed straight up pellets, but let's see, break it down just a little bit and not go as small as what um, seems to be fed um, from our assessment. And so we designed a study based on that and trying to select sieving feed every day. My students love me. We did this project um, over the fall football season, <laughs> and, um, you know, we received out feed, uh, varying feed qualities to try to, you know, um, we had to varying feed starting qualities and we had to sieve the feed before we place it in the feed pan. And then we had to collect the feed each day and then sieve it afterwards. And so what we were looking at was trying to figure out, okay, when did Bert start picking those larger particle sizes? We had some treatments that included pellets and some that included variety of crumble particle sizes. And regardless um, of, of the feed treatment, we found that birds were going after those larger particle sizes, even at the day of age. Um, and really what we were, look, we were finding um, was that birds were consuming feed um, trying to think of the particle size this is great and fascinating because i get a lot of comments about there's too many pellets the crumbles are too big the crumbles are too big we tend to freak out about that more so than the fines people get really upset about that <laughs> and i mean i know that in the field too that people are you know that feed is delivered um like if, if feed accidentally gets delivered into um to a you know, starter feed and they actually get pellets and people think, okay, well, the birds are going to waste feed, right? Um, they're and you know they're going to start maybe eating litter earlier, and so then you might have issues with necrotic later um, because of that. And I, I mean, and that may be, but our birds were on you know used litter from our commercial houses, um, and they had some really high quality pellets. I think like it was like ninety five percent pellets in one of the treatments and hard big pellets and birds were playing with them you could see them pick it up and kind of play with them and they'd break them apart and i thought well 
and you could see some of the pellets in the litter. Yeah, so obviously we're eating the litter, but we we really and of course it's a pen trial kind of setting. Um, but we have houses that are you know set up to try to mimic commercial production as best as possible. Um, and we didn't see really any disease issues. Um, and the birds still, even those fed high quality pellets, um, still did well in performance and really their performance wasn't hurt. And that's not only just looking at 18 days, you know, that we, in these studies that we've been doing, um, we've then followed it up and fed birds, all of the birds, common grower and finisher diets. Because of course, you know, you can, you can make a difference in the starter phase, but does it really matter if it hurts per- performance in the long run, right? Um, so we try to make sure that all these studies we've been following up like that. Um, but so what we found was, I mean, we did look at, in this initial study we we're talking about, we looked at two genetic strains, also high yielding and fast growing chicks. And um, we found that birds um, that were high yielding, they consumed uh, average feed particle size of about 2,500 microns. Um, from that zero to 18 days range. And then fast growing were about 2,200 microns. So pretty big. Um, we've since followed it up and looked at more research and, you know, some of the more, the, I guess, older research um, that was done with um, looking at bird preference and particle size. A lot of that's been done with ingredients, um, not as much with you know, uh, pellets and crumbles, you know, our overall feed particle size. And, um, you know, if you talk to people, well, and, you know, and ask them, why do we crumble feed? It's because, well, birds can't eat pellets. A, chick, a day old chick can't eat pellets. Um, and that's because they don't have the beak size to be able to do it. So we need to crumble our feed to make it to be able to meet bird beak capacity. Um, but if you start looking in the literature, you can't find hardly anything on beak size. Most of the, anything that's been done has been done on layers um, with beak trimming, some with like songbirds. And so that's what we kind of moved into designing another trial and looking at, okay, if this is true, if it's bird beak size is what's the limiting factor in what particle size that you can feed, what does that look like and between birds? Um, how do you get, you know, birds with different bird beak sizes and um, to start out with, to be able to kind of test that hypothesis? And um, does it really impact the feed particle size that they prefer? So we designed a study doing that with 10 little individual feeders in each pen. Um, and we doing some background research beforehand for some preliminary research, we looked and um, we obtained chicks, just, um, you know, a, a wide variety of chicks. We weighed the birds, measured their beaks, and it looked like, you know, it was very clear connection that bird weight was pretty correlated with bird beak size. And that makes sense, right? Um, and so then we're like, okay, well, how do we induce that um, for a study to really test that in the bird beak size? So we thought, okay, if you get chicks from different breeder flock ages, that's one way to get different chick sizes starting out. 
So that's what we did. We got chicks from um, breeder flock age that were more pullet versus breeder flock age that were more late. So we had small and bigger chicks. And sure enough, beak sizes, small for the small birds, larger for the big bird, for the larger birds, right? And what was really interesting at 18 days, we saw no difference. Um, even though we found differences in beak size still with the birds, we saw no difference in what their feed particle size preference was. Um, and so it was really, really interesting. So I, I think um, while we know that from the older literature uh, that birds had these mechanoreceptors in their beak um, to be able to kind of uh, to, to select the beak the feed that they're picking up. Uh, I don't think that the bird beak size matters um, as much as just let's let's see what is feasible um, to feed the bird, right? Feasible to produce in your feed mill. Um, we still couldn't kind of relate back to be able to kind of see um, birds consuming really, really big particle sizes of feed like um, in that 3,800 microns, uh, they kind of, they were given either a choice of what feed. So they were, they were given ranges from all the way up from a mash, all the way up to 4,000 microns. And basically all those sieves in between of different particle sizes, each feeder got each different particle size. And then we rearranged that every single day um, in the pens. And so birds were going after some bigger particle sizes, but it was still more up in that 2000 um, and a little more micron range. Um, and so we also gave birds a no choice still in the 10 different feeders in other pens that were all randomized, you know, throughout the house. And they consumed, they started going after the larger particle sizes and they consumed a larger particle size than the birds that had a choice. So I think that's interesting in itself. So if you have, and that's where I think the distribution of the feed particle size matters. Um, if, so if you have some varying ranges, then the birds can kind of self-adapt and get into um, the point wherever they're able to eat uh, larger feed particle sizes. Um, but still, even within a couple of days, they're still eating, uh, consuming feed that's around that much larger than a 1400 micron, uh, just average particle size. They're not consuming mass. Like we talked about earlier, you know, the birds, even at day of age, they don't prefer mash. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, we still have kind of scratched the surface. And then whenever you start adding into the fact that Okay, your beginning ingredient particle size, you know, then is is reduced in your overall particle size after pelleting, and um, and and most of that reduction in size happens in the pellet mill itself, not from just crumbling feed um, from some of the the data that Pacheco has. Um, so, kind of bringing all those things together, it's it's such a complex story. Um, and, and we're just scratching the surface and, uh, I mean, the, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever know the answer, but those are all the different pieces of us, you know, working in these different areas and trying to, and that's the importance of collaboration though too, right. And talking to your peers, they're doing some of that work, but then also 
not only in academia, but also in industry to making sure that, you know, what we're doing is actually relevant too. Um, that's important. <laughs> um, so we're really excited about this journey. Um, we, um, uh, we just, we haven't uh, found the starter, optimal starter feed particle size yet with really about four or five different studies. We still haven't gotten there, <laughs> um, but we're still on the, on the journey. So, <laughs> but we know, <laughs> yeah, it is, it's very complicated. And then, you know, then you just think about different diets and I mean, you can, you throw in so much um, and, feed processing, dye thickness, you know, pressure, um, moisture. <laughs> There's so many things um, that can be changed. And so that's why it's so important, even in just doing feed quality research, that you try to standardize as much as possible. So if you can standardize your feed processing and then making your feed treatments from that commonly manufactured feed or, you know, trying to isolate differences between you know, the impact of feed manufacture on nutrient digestibility, right, versus, you know, feed quality. Um, so it's it's such a complex area, but um, that also makes it really fun, too. Um, also, sometimes frustrating. I can tell you enjoy working on this because you are tackling this very complex problem and designing these studies that I have to say are nothing short of masochistic as far as having to go away and sit to feed at empty feeders and your students I can tell your students must love you as a mentor because they wouldn't do it if they didn't you know <laughs> I know well and I I do try to be out there during the time period so you know my husband's not as happy with that <laughs> maybe he is because I'm out of the house but uh, oh, but I, I do try to make sure I mean I ask a lot of my students um but they um but they're awesome. And I'm so fortunate to be able to also, and sometimes, you know, different faculty here in the department and their students, you know, will be pitching in when we need the all hands on deck. And I've got another crazy experiment that's looking at optimal feed particle size. They know that, okay, it's going to require some, a lot of work outside of that Monday through Friday, eight to five time period. Um, and, you know, for some reason, I've been able to schedule it during football season a lot, and then <laughs> summer vacation time too. And oh, but you know, we'll um, we'll, we'll get there. But I'm very fortunate to have a great group of students and um and and people around me to help make sure that we get this research done right. <laughs> well, we're very fortunate to have you doing this research. I mean, it's something that, like you said, controlling for all those variables is not really something we can do on the industry side. And this is an important problem and really highlights why we need to question some of the assumptions we have, such as the assumption that, you know, starting chicks need to have a very small particle size feed. Yeah, it may not necessarily be true. And there's a lot of benefits to maybe changing that kind of uh, idea. So really appreciate you working on this very complicated problem so that we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about what's going on at Mississippi State or things you're excited about in the department? Yeah, thanks. Um, I really, absolutely. We have, um, you know, those of you that know our department, look, I'm from the outside looking in. It's been a little hectic. Um, we've had a lot of uh, just uh, transitions going on. And so we've had new faculty come, which are amazing, new um, young faculty. 
And um, we have a new department head, um, Dr. Kim Macklin, coming from Auburn. And so we're really excited about our trajectory in the department. Um, one of our new faculty is Dr. Tim Boltz. And so his training is in feed manufacture, uh, broiler nutrition, and feed hygienics, uh, which is something we didn't talk about, but feed hygiene is really, really important. Um, and so I'm excited to have him on this team um, and our team because we've been working on trying to get um, a new feed mill. And so we've got a lot of industry support out there and we've had a feed mill advisory board and we've got a, um, some great donations um, that have been coming in. Um, we still have some more fundraising to go, but we're really excited about the project itself. Um, not only to be able to enhance our feed quality research like this, um, but also to be able to um, expand our curriculum. Um, we, I teach a course of feed manufacture, as you said, um, but I don't have a lab associated with us because we don't have a pellet mill that we can take students in to be able to um, train them. We get use other resources to be able to do this kind of research. Um, luckily, we do have USDA ARS and they're great partners and we partner with them and um, pellet our feed over at their feed mill also. And Auburn has helped us out quite a bit. Um, but we're looking for being able to um, also give hands-on experience for our students um, because we're, we're training, you know, tomorrow's industry leaders. And to do that right, we need to have, you know, be able to maximize the amount of hands-on experiences that they can do. And so Tim and I are also looking at revising some of our curriculum um, to add two additional courses um, that relate to feed manufacture and feed mill management. Um, to have a um, concentration in that area and then also be able to do some um, training of industry because uh, we know that a lot of the feed mill managers today are coming from places that not in a feed mill and so um, don't have much of a background. And so we want to be one of those resources in this location that we can, in the United States, that they can come to. And um, there are many others out there that are, have some training programs going on but, you know, that's time, distance, um, and money from a company um, and from a person. Um, and so if we can be in someone's backyard and help train them and ha give them high-quality training here, that's, the, that's what the kind of the niche that we would like to fill. So really excited about our department in general. I mean, we've been in a brand-new building for the past two years and um, just a lot of great things going on with a vibrant young faculty, and um, they all have dynamite research programs. So thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, that's so exciting to hear. I'm glad to hear that the program is growing and thriving and so exciting to have a, a new feed mill on the horizon. That is definitely something that is mission critical to support the future feed mill managers for the industry. Uh, if I had a dollar for it, every time I've heard the industry complain that there aren't enough people with hands-on training coming out of school, we probably have enough dollars to build that bead melt. So that's true. <laughs> so if you could do me a favor, just start collecting it. And then yes, every time someone complains, we'll just put a dollar in a job. Yeah. And then everybody else who's listening, please do the same thing and yeah. then just send it over. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. But uh, I mean, it is something that would sincerely help the industry to have students coming with more hands-on training. I'm glad that Mississippi State is making that a priority. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. It's time for our famous three. The 
Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Um, just one last thing before I let you go. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, we ask the same three questions to every guest on the podcast about resources that you rely on. Uh, the first of which is, could you recommend any resources in your field? So uh, having to do with poultry nutrition, feed manufacturing, or honestly, with teaching as well. Yeah. So one of the resources that I would recommend, um, there's a chicken nutrition book, I think that's out there, and a broiler nutrition book. Um, I think that's by Rick Klein. Um, uh, he's at least one of the authors. Um, I think that those are really good practical books that I've utilized um, a good bit. Um, the AFIA puts out like the feed technology manual. Um, it's pretty expensive, but um, it's been a good resource for me as well. Um, plus, you know, just popular press articles. Um, I think it's really important just to, you know, have your thumb on, you know, just general areas, even if they're not specific to what you're doing, um, knowing what the hot topics are in the industry. So depending on where you're at, you can at least talk a little bit about what's going on and have, you know, your, it's not just brand new news. Um, and then I would also say um, one book would, that would be really good is um, uh, Stephen Covey's um, Habit, Seven Habits of Successful People. I think I'm saying that right, but um, that's a, that's a, a great book. Um, also, we've had a lot of our um, graduate seminar courses that have been kind of, you know, centered around reading that book. Mm, that's a great idea. How about something that is unrelated to your field? So this could be something fun or something that you find enriching personally, podcast, book, TV, anything. I don't really read that much outside of, you know, just well, I don't know how you have time. You have to sieve all that beef. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You'd think I'd be a lot more buff from doing all that. <laughs> um, but I would say, um, so one thing that I do, I like is um, Adam Grant. He, um, I follow his podcasts and some of the associated podcasts that he promotes. Um, and I think it's called Work Life with Adam Grant. And so I don't have a long commute. My commute's like five or 10 minutes in the morning. So I don't really listen it for that, listen during those times. But if I'm on the road or something like that, I like to pull those up. Or if I just, you know, just want to sit at home and listen to a podcast, that's kind of what I'll do. A lot of the time, though, um, I mean, I'm reading a lot of other things. Um, and so I just, I don't really read for fun. Um, 
except for like memes, I guess on Instagram. You know, just, uh, hey, can you really on Instagram count as enrichment? That's right. <laughs> if that makes you laugh, if it makes you smile and brightens your day, it counts. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think that we you gotta have fun no matter what you do. So um Exactly. But, yeah. So um but I think Adam Grant's um podcasts and um some of his ideas on on what you know, leadership and um, kind of different things about motivation. And if you get, um, you know, uh, burnout at work, I mean, he just has a lot of different um, related um, podcasts and uh, write-ups that are really relatable to anybody, regardless of your area. Um, And so I do that. And I listen to a lot of music, um, really random music, like everything from under the sun I like to listen to. Um, and um i like my one of my favorite things to do was when we process birds i have um all the students that are coming from processing i have them submit five songs clean five songs and each or if we go on a road trip and then i build a playlist out of that and um then we get to listen to everybody's different music preferences too and then i try to tell them not to do any sad songs i want stuff that's upbeat motivating you know but (laughs) Sometimes some of those songs slip in, but um, I like I like to just listen to music. And um, that's a fantastic idea. Why didn't I think of that when I was processing birds, man? And just a great idea to get to know each other's music. I mean, sometimes it's hard to kind of break out of your your rut with music and you know, new artists, or maybe I'm just getting old. I don't know. No, I have the but. same problem. <laughs> or maybe I'm just getting old too. But. <laughs> That is me young. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you kind of already touched on this, but uh, the last question we wanted to ask is if you think about someone who is successful, and this could be in work or life in general, uh, what do you think makes a successful person? I think, you know, somebody that's level headed, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and somebody who, um, yeah, not necessarily, you know, the, the person who got all A's, um, you know, but somebody who has grit, determination, um, and is just hardworking um, and and has some critical thinking skills. Um, I think that's, that, that's somebody that that's what kind of success um, or characteristics of a successful person. I think that's what you're asking for. Okay. Um, and so... Um, yeah, I think those are some of the really good qualities um, that I see and somebody that I would say would be successful and passionate yeah. about what they do, right? Yes, for um, sure. Because you can listen to something, you know, if, you know, somebody can talk about air conditioning, you know, air conditioners. And I mean, I don't really care that much about air conditioners, except for as long as mine works in the summer <laughs> um, and actually most of the months in Mississippi. I need my air conditioner work. That's all I care about. But somebody coming and talking about like the mechanical, um, you know, workings of an air conditioner, I'm not, you know, really that um, into it. But if the person is passionate, you know, you can get somebody on, you can get a whole audience of people on board listening to, um, you know, that boring topic. (laughs) No offense to anybody that really cares about air conditioners and how they work, but... (laughs) Yes, it makes it much easier to learn when someone is passionate about what they're teaching, for sure. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was a great conversation. You've given us a lot to think about, especially on the starter particle size thing. But um, we really hope to have you back on the podcast again to give us an update on all the changes uh, in the poultry science department and the progress on on your new feed mill project um, and also an update on your research in the future. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thanks. Thanks for having me and thanks for everybody for listening. Thanks, Kate.